Hey friends, and welcome to the How to Be Okay So That Everything Else Doesn't Have to Be Podcast. I'm your host, Laura Hudson, and we are on a journey to let go of our laundry list of misguided attempts to feel what we all just want to feel. Okay. So thanks for tuning in and let's get into this week's episode. And I get a DUI and I get let go from my job, like all in the same week. And I'm drinking and partying way too much, like way, 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 way too much. And, um, and if you know anything about prostitution or human trafficking, you know, they really look for people that need to be saved. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the How to Be Okay podcast, friends. Um, first and foremost, um, sorry if you missed me last week. Um, if you don't follow along on social media, which you should, How to Be Okay podcast on Instagram, um, I've made the decision to move to a bi-weekly posting schedule. So episodes are going to be coming out every two weeks. This is just going to allow me to source out the best possible guests and create the highest quality episodes that I can for you guys. So um, this is good news, but um, I did miss you all last week. So I'm excited to be back. And today we are chatting with Sophie Jones. Sophie is a human trafficking survivor and mega successful real estate agent turned business coach and breathwork healer. You guys, if there was one word I had to use to describe Sophie, it would be resilient. Her childhood, it was filled with abuse and addiction. And with a criminal attorney for a father, she was introduced to the underworld at a young age and she developed a sense of comfort and familiarity inside of it. So as a teenager, she found herself attracted to the bad boy. And this ultimately led to her falling for a guy who would go on to groom her and manipulate her into the world of prostitution. Sophie gets real for us about how she found herself in that situation, what kept her there, and the near-death experience that it took for her to get out. Sophie is now sober, but we talk about addiction and the erosion of self-trust that can come with it. And while Sophie knows suffering and she knows intimately what it feels like to be searching deeply for okayness outside of yourself, what I'm so interested in getting into with Sophie is how she has turned this suffering into her life's work helping others. She has done incredible work to learn how to be okay from the inside out, and she spends her days helping others to do them the same so that they can achieve their goals. So we're going to get into all of that. Um, we laugh, we cry, um, we we get into a lot here. So buckle up. I am so excited to introduce you all to my friend, Sophie Jones. So if you are enjoying the How to Be Okay podcast, it would mean the world to me if you could rate and subscribe the show. It really helps other people find us. So thank you, thank you, thank you for doing that if you care to. Um, okay, so that's it for me. I give you Sophie Jones. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Sophie, for coming on to my podcast. When I heard about your story and had the pleasure of speaking with you and going to your breathwork circle, I knew that you were someone that I wanted to bring on to the podcast because your story is one of such resilience and a true display of learn of trying to find okayness outside of yourself through so many different ways. And then ultimately coming to this place where not only you have found it, but you're making a living helping other people find it as well. So I'm like, you are so, so perfect Yay. for this podcast. So thank you for coming on. <laughs> it's an honor. Awesome. Okay. So from, yeah, so your story from a childhood that you you, you had um, abuse and addiction in the home to moving on to an, an early adulthood where you were struggling with toxic relationships and drug cartel to mega successful real estate agent, but still kind of suffering on the inside to now um, 
a life coach and breathwork healer and super successful entrepreneur. So you have so many different phases of your life that I want to make sure that we touch on because I have really kind of specific questions for each of them and everything. But I was kind of thinking when I was prepping for today's episode that I was like, I want to kind of focus on some of those latter chapters. So the real estate and now your breathwork healing. Um, But I also think it's important to touch on those earlier times in your life because I think that will really help us lay the foundation and understand kind of the different parts of you that you were running from and that you eventually turned into and that sort of thing. So my question to kick things off for us is I was listening to you on another podcast and you said something that was so profound and you said a lot of things that I liked and that I wrote down, but there was one thing in particular and you had said that you were talking to your therapist and you had kind of said, look, like I don't want to go back into the burning building that is me and my past and kind of don't make me go back in there. And And then eventually you kind of went on to say like you did have to go back in only to realize that like it wasn't a burning building and you went into those rooms and you kind of discovered that, okay, there's no boogeyman there. Like, And I just love that analogy for turning into yourself and recognizing that like life's not about running from your past. It's about turning and facing it and kind of making peace with it. And so I was kind of thinking for our first question, it might be interesting if you kind of walked us through that house in a way and shared with us some of the different experiences or stories that ultimately you were holding on to as you moved into the latter phases of your journey. And kind of that will give us a bit of a picture in terms of your healing journey and that sort of thing. I know that's kind of a heavy question, but that's kind of how I roll. Yeah, love it. Um, Okay, so I think the main thing was, you know, when I was so I was young. And so part of that burning building was my mother wasn't around when in my formative years, um, I lived with my grandparents. And so when you start to study about trauma, and you start to study about developmental years, you know, I didn't really have either my primary parents around. And, um, and I think that really affected my need for attachment to, to things. And so um, my mom was a young mom and she was an alcoholic. So when she was around, she was abusive. Um, and she's an incredible woman and has like 20 plus years of recovery today. But that was really hard. And, um, and so at a young age, I, um, I had a, a pretty severe learning disability and I was dyslexic and, um, and I, I didn't have, you know, we moved out of my grandparents' house when I was going to first grade and, you know, they were older. And so I didn't, I didn't really have anyone looking after my education. And so the first and second year, first and second grade year, you know, my mom, I was living with her and she was actively drinking. And so I went and lived with my dad and, um, and I went, I'm from Salt Lake city, Utah. And so the predominant faith there is, um, Mormon or Latter-day Saints. And I wasn't of the predominant faith. And I moved to a neighborhood that was pretty affluent and was very taboo for me to be living, you know, man raising as a single daughter. And, um, and on top of that, so it was a massive culture shock for me. I came from downtown and, um, came from like no supervision to like super, you know, I was like, whoa, this is intense. And I didn't know how to read. Um, and I didn't have a mom or a woman in my house. And so at a very young age, I felt very, very different. Um, and I felt, you know, not smart and I felt stupid and I had to go to resource and, um, and I was really strong. I was really opinionated. You know, I didn't mind getting in trouble. And I was usually smarter than my teachers at like that age. And not in a good way, but like <laughs> could out outsmart them where it was like, if I was getting in trouble, you were getting in trouble too, you know, yeah. and you're the teacher. And like, it would go down that way, you know, and it was like some, some different things. But what was happening is when that stuff was going on, um, when we talk about the burning building is those were the things that were lighting my, mm. my rooms on fire. Right. Yeah. It's just like, I didn't, I just didn't, um, yeah, I just didn't have a normal upbringing. It didn't, wasn't yeah. normal from what they, what I was witnessing. Yeah. Especially being in Utah. And then my dad's a criminal attorney. And so, you know, I was raised 
on top of like this weirdness to other people, you know, I went to dinner five nights a week with, you know, anywhere between three and seven men and they were my godfathers. And like, I was raised just so different. Um, and, and I loved a bad boy since I was very young. Like I, I think I just came out of the womb that way. I mean, when you learn about trauma, it's like, no wonder, but, um, you know, so I, I became really, you know, my friends were the worst boys in the neighborhood that turn out, you know, to be criminals and drug addicts later in life. And, and as did I, you know, in some ways. And so those were like the real fundamental um, things that, and I don't know how like late you want me to go in the story. So I'm just trying to keep it compartmentalized because we could talk forever. But those were like the, the things that I would say were um, pretty hard for me to face that I like, that I didn't think were as big a deal as they were, as I got older and thought, oh my God, all of this is because of that stuff. Um, right. And so does that answer the question? Absolutely. I think that that, that's, that definitely answers the question. And I'm kind of thinking, so then those were some of the, the kind of the attachment, the, the learning disabilities and some of the stories and the self-beliefs that you had, um, and what felt normal and safe and comfortable for you. So that all kind of came together and you moved on into your late teens, early adulthood and, or I'm not sure of the timeline, maybe you can clarify, but you eventually, um, can you walk us through kind of that next phase? So some of the relationships that you got into and where that led you. (laughs) Yeah. So I have that um, framework, which is just wonderful for, you know, where we're headed because I'm like, okay, I know I'm smart in terms of, I know that I can like negotiate and argue and stand up for myself and I'm mature. And, and so I have these good qualities, but I'm not super book smart. And so as I continue to get through junior high and high school, I'm just dating like, you know, the kid that sells like weed or like. You know, I just don't, I don't even relate to any type of like normal guy and I was super boy crazy. And so, uh, and I looked much older than I was, you know, and I wore a lot of makeup and I just fell in love. You know, I, I joke, but it's really serious. Like I, I saw the Godfather and I was like, oh my God, that's going to be my life. Like I was super glamorized. So as I moved through these phases, um, I ended up dating a few bad boys and then met a guy in the snowboarding industry. Um, being from Utah, it's a big deal there. And, um, and we moved from Utah to Colorado to Oregon and, um, that fell apart after a few years. And, uh, I was, I was like 21. So through my early teens and late teens, you know, I just partied really hard. I was always a super hard worker, which, turned out to be a huge blessing, but didn't have any, um, aspirations to go to college really, or like to get a degree. Um, and so I had done a little community college. So I'm in Portland, Oregon, I'm single and I'm like, I'm just going to go back to what I know, which is, you know, I'm going to go find a bad boy. And I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof. You couldn't tell me anything ever, you know? And, um, And so I didn't know at the time, and most people don't know that like Portland was, I don't think it is now, but was back then, like the number one place for young women to get turned out into prostitution in the country. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. There's more strip clubs in Portland at that time than I think there were in Vegas. So, but they're very small. They're like on every corner. It's not like this big bougie thing. So, okay. I didn't have any idea and um, I met a gentleman and I was like, okay, yeah, perfect. I know how the underworld works. You know, my, I, as good as it was that my dad was a criminal attorney, like I also was, I was very much um, right and wrong in my house was really a moral compass. It wasn't a matter of like what you did for a living. Right. So it's like, so I just had a really jaded and I still feel that way. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, if you want to sell drugs, like, okay. And if you want to work for a pharmaceutical company, okay. I think you're the same person. Like, I, you know what I mean? It's not so, so just because, yeah, just how you go about it doesn't make you right. It doesn't make it different in my eyes. So, okay. So I meet this guy and I'm like, okay, yeah, perfect. I'm going to just, he's of the streets and he's very charismatic and, you know, has nice cars and has these pretty women around. And I'm like, okay. And I, um, 
so I'm thinking like I've got it made and I'm going to just be some like street, you know, like glamorized woman in a rap video, which is like non-existent. And, um, and I get a DUI and I get let go from my job, like all in the same week. And I'm drinking and partying way too much, like way, 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 way too much. And, um, and if you know anything about prostitution or human trafficking, you know, they really look for people that need to be saved. And so this all just kind of happened like within a three week span. And so this man was taking care of me and he had been a pimp for a long time and lived in Vegas for a long time and had come back to Portland. And, you know, I was like, Oh, I'd never do that. I'd never do that. Um, but I was pretty desperate and I didn't really want to tell my family what was going on, um, to the full degree. And I like, I get an adrenaline high off seeing like, well, how far can I push it? You know, like what, what can, what really is, you know? And, um, and so he has these beautiful women coming around me that have big diamonds and they look, you know, they, they're like what I thought I wanted, you know? And so I agreed that I would do it. And, um, you know, but there's a lot of grooming that goes in to the more you find out about human trafficking, a lot of people think human trafficking, they think, the young woman that's like, or the young, the young kid that gets like stolen in a Walmart, right? Like a lot of people don't realize women are being trafficked. Like, you know, probably the bigger sector of that. Although we do hear about like the stolen children or whatnot, but it's like a lot of them, especially girls in Vegas or in any major city or girls that are being pimped out or like women that are of the States that don't have good self-worth, don't have good self-esteem and are like, really groomed and manipulated into like, I'll take care of you. It's just how people, it's how people get involved in gangs. You know, it's like structure. It's, it's a sign of, so yeah. So I agree to do it. Um, and I'm thinking this is super glamorous and, um, I'm going to make all this money and it's the oldest profession in the world and blah, blah, blah. And so, um, the next day, this guy, you know, he had done this a long time with a lot of women. And so the very next day I was on an airplane, um, away from everybody I knew with him. And we went out to New York and New Jersey and down to Florida and out to DC and, um, and th- you know, things, some blessings from that time where I found out I was great in sales. Um, but some hard things where he was extremely abusive. I, outside of, being around my mom and yes, I felt comfortable around scary men, but I'd really never had like a grown man, like hit me and hurt me. Right. And so things got pretty scary, pretty fast. And, um, and we ended up going back to Vegas and, um, that whole lifestyle, that whole glamorized version of that lifestyle just came like crashing down around me. And, um, he almost beat me to death and it's common for, you know, the girls to be left in the desert out there. Like it's not, you know, it's just, and so it kind of, I, I made a post about it in 2018 when I kind of told everyone what had gone on and, um, and everyone in my hometown of Utah knew about it because there's like online websites. And so it was, it was like pretty soul shattering and, and, um, I, had a brave face and felt like, okay, like you can't hurt me. You know, this is what I'm choosing to do. Um, but when he almost killed me, you know, I had some divine intervention happen and I had a friend bring me home. Um, the next got my phone number, um, who is also a career criminal, (laughs) but you know, it's just funny how things work and, um, bought me a plane ticket and I came home and, um, that would kind of be, the probably the biggest, biggest part of that burning building was, you know, that or one of them was that. And, and I just um, went on to, you know, say, like, almost act like, you know, that didn't happen. And it certainly didn't happen because I was using drugs and alcohol, or that I felt even at a younger age that like I needed to be saved. And I just felt like, um, you know, I could just start some new chapters. 
And so that's what I would go on to do. But I want to, I could go on and on and on. So I want to make sure you get your questions in. So is there <laughs> something else you want to ask? <laughs> no, no, that was, that was really good. I, one of my kind of questions for that time in your life was going to be, yeah. we talk a lot about on this podcast, all of our different vices. We've talked about codependency, dermatillomania, hair pulling, um, drugs, alcohol, food. We, there's the obvious negative consequences of it prostitution like it there's the obvious kind of downsides to it i'm i was kind of curious to know but you said in some way like it was saving you like in some way he he kind of gave you this love that you you felt like you were starving for i think you said and so i was i was just curious to know but i guess you kind of answered it in that you said it was like a sense of community and or what would you say like really kept you in it up until that moment where you're like this is it i have to get out of here yeah, it was the needing to be special. Yeah. You know, yeah. like be the most special person in that man's eyes. And that I, you know, if I would just do anything for him, you know, I would be loved and I would be enough. And, you know, I think that even comes from, you know, being around my dot, my dad, you know, and, you know, wanting to be perfect, although I was really wild. And so as a child, even, and so, um, you know, what I was getting out of that was this real sense of security. Like if I did everything right, everything was going to be all right. And, you know, unfortunately that's a lie. You know, no one's ever going to do everything right. And, um, and because of that, like no person in that situation, whether it was a normal, totally nice guy, would have been would have made things okay for me. But, um, you know, there's something very elusive about the underworld. You know, you talk to people, that's why people stay in it. You know, it's like, there's a culture behind that stuff. And I mean, just as much as like hair pulling and, and different things, right. Or, or alcohol and drugs. And like, there's a culture that goes into that stuff. And it, and for me, it was like, okay, Like, I'm going to be the biggest boss bitch around, you know, like, and buying into that and not realizing, because at the time I was just so jaded as to how detrimental that was to like me and my like inner child and like all of that. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like there's this weird kind of merging of like, it's in some ways it was disempowering because you're being trafficked and he's a pimp. And, (laughs) but in some ways you were really empowered because you were wanted and you were in control in some ways and stuff. So that's, that's really interesting. And so in terms of your, your addiction, so you, you got out of that situation, you moved back home. And then from what I understand, your addiction to alcohol continued on into this next phase. So you went on to um, become a very successful real estate agent and very entrepreneurial in this space, which I want, I want to kind of hear that progression, that story. But um, what kind of remained during that time was like on the outside, your life looked amazing. It was the lifestyles of the rich and famous, but you, you've kind of said like on the inside, you were still really suffering and you didn't, you felt very far away from yourself. And so I guess I'm curious to know in terms of that addiction and what kind of kept you in that place. Um, you had said in another podcast, you had said like, you can't trust your thoughts when it comes to addiction. And that really resonated with me because with my compulsions and especially with my skin picking, um, it's such an erosion of self-trust, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's this, I can't even trust myself to be in a room with myself without causing harm to myself. And so this Mm -hmm. self-trust, I'm still building back every single day and working on it. And some days I take 10 steps back and then some days I take a step forward. And so I'm, I'm just curious to know about kind of this next part in your life where like addiction was still running rampant, but on the outside, things looked amazing. I'm curious to know what that felt like balancing those two worlds, I guess. Um, yeah, balancing. Oh, I don't know if that's a good word for that. So when I did come home, Cause there, there, so, um, there's just one blip where I decided to get sober. So it was my first time trying to get sober. So I came home and I was like, none of this happened because I was drinking 
and doing it on a ton of cocaine, like that definitely wasn't why all of this other stuff happened. Right. And it was and wasn't, but it certainly, I don't think would have happened if I wasn't doing that stuff. So uh, my mom, like I said, is, um, has been in recovery. And so I decided that I was going to get sober for a year. I didn't think I had a problem, but I could see how, like, I didn't think I was an alcoholic, but I could see how that stuff had created some poor decision-making. Okay. And so, <laughs> so I just have to like put this part of it in there. And so I decided to go to a 12 step recovery program. Um, and I just said I was going to go for a year. And, um, and so, and then I got my real estate license there. So I want to hit on a couple things that you said, cause you said, okay, so eroding of self-trust, um, you know, and then having this massive success and what does that even look like? Right. And, it's even interesting what you just said about like, so you were in something very disempowering, but it was empowering. I think this is like my karma of my life, right? The the paradigm and it messes with me all the time, but it's like, it's like, so what would happen or what would, what did happen is when I got my real estate license, I found self-improvement and personal development. And I was lucky enough to join a very small brokerage that's a huge brokerage now and had some great leadership and started to pay for some coaching. You know, at my at 23, I paid for a, my first business coach. And so, um, so how did that look? That balance was like, I had a lot of structure and I had a lot of reasons to change. You know, I just didn't want to be. And at that time I was sober and, um, and so I don't know if I could say, because as things would progress, so I got my real estate license in Utah and had some success there. And then I got married and went to North Carolina and um, had been drinking and my ex-husband and I drank a lot and had success there. Um, but I always prioritized fun, what I thought was fun. I always liked to party and have a good time, but I really, really, I, even to this day, like I'm reading the new Tim S. Grover book and he was um, the trainer for Michael Jordan. Like I'm still obsessed with performance. I like high achievement, you know, in this world, we hear a lot about like alignment and attunement. And I think that stuff's true, but I also love like some good old fashioned hard work, you know? And so I think what balance looked like for me was that I enjoyed, I enjoyed pushing my limits. I enjoyed working hard. I enjoyed getting paid for that in real estate. You know, you don't, you get paid for how hard you work, um, in, in a sense. And, um, I was still in sales, so I was good at that. And I had a really good skill set. I had, you know, with all those business coaches learned to call for sell by owners, people trying to sell their house themselves or expired and was taught to come up in real estate that way. So I could start my business over anywhere, anywhere I wanted to. And that gave me, a real sense of almost being invincible because I could just pick up the phone. You know, I've started my, I started my real estate business over four times and was always very successful, but what that, it was like, I had no humility at all. Um, and you know, like when you say lifestyle of the rich and famous, it was just like, you know, we were going to have a good time. We were going to spend every dollar we had, you know, we could always make more, I didn't necessarily value people. It was more a transaction. And that's very similar to prostitution. Right. You know, if you really think yeah. about it, right? Yeah. And absolutely. not all real estate agents are like that. You know, there's other real estate agents that are, I think, much more present. I think as a coach, I'm much more present and um, available. But at that time, I was um, very ego-driven and you know, spent money to make money and, um, it felt good. It still feels good to this day in a lot of ways, but, you know, through breath work and some other things, I'm able to go, okay, like there's a limit and you're human and there's a million ways to climb the ladder and running up it just to kick it down and do it again is usually probably not the smartest way, right? Like, we can enjoy the ride. And, um, and so, yeah, does that answer that? I don't know. It was kind of, no, definitely. My questions are always like very all over the place. So any answer I'm like, yeah, you hit it. You're good. So, so, um, one thing that you said about that time in your life is that you felt very far away from yourself. I'm curious Mm -hmm. to know what, 
what was it that made you feel that way? Was it like a voice in your head that just like came to you in certain times where you're like, this feels so far from who I am? Because in a weird way, I also kind of connect to this part in that I just recently quit my corporate marketing job. And it was like, on the outside, it was like a great job. I had a really good boss. I really loved my team. It's a good company security through a global pandemic. Like there's so many things where it's like made sense to stay. But inside, I was just like, this is not it. Like this cannot be it. Like I and when you just said like, far away from myself, I'm like, that's how it felt. I was I felt very far from me. And so I'm curious to know kind of how that manifested in you and what how that ultimately led to you moving into this next chapter where you are now. Yeah. You know, what kept me feeling far away from myself were the the same Groundhog Day that I would show up to that you just described. But my Groundhog Day, you know, when I even when I was selling real estate, like my last boyfriend before my now husband, you know, had gone to prison for 25 years and was a huge drug trafficker in the cartel. So it's like, I just would go back to, it's similar with skin picking. It's like, I would just go back to those fundamental things that I know how to soothe. And I, but I knew that those actions didn't align with where, who I wanted to be and where I wanted to go. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's like so hard when you're in them to, you know, so what those actions felt like were like, you know, being successful and still having the abusive boyfriend, you know, right. yeah, we're still partying for three days and having so much anxiety. I couldn't drive my car and I've got to go, you know, just anxiety, even keep the appearances up, you know, those things kept me far away from myself or, or, you know, getting too drunk and and being rude or or blacking out every night and and waking up and just being like there has got to be like I know deep down and I I truly believe that the version I am today was just like in the background like yeah. fighting for me every step of the way like yeah you know I think about it and I'm like it gets emotional because it takes a lot to just keep trying. I think people, I, I think that's like a big message that I always am telling people is like, just don't give up. You will find a way, you know, yeah. but it's just a matter of when you keep doing things that don't, that you know, personally don't align, whether that's just going to a corporate job, it doesn't have to be the same story, but it's the same things, Right. And yet, you know, deep down, you're like, I really am made for more. There's something I have a deeper purpose. I have more impact to give. It can be soul crushing to live that life for years and years and years, especially when my saving grace was like that, that life of like success and beauty and ego and all of that. Right. And so to be like, oh, my God, this is the thing that's, you know, this is now this is now my new my new boss. It's not, it's not fun. Absolutely. And I think that sense of like abandonment of yourself and I've, I've felt that a lot throughout my life. And then there's this like returning and to make it full circle, it's turning into that burning building, you know, and it's, and then you realize it's, it's not a burning building filled with all these boogeymans. It's just like you as a younger version of yourself really hurt but yeah. and so you you kind of turn into that and it's so emotional and you feel so sad for that girl who's like stuck and you never turn to her and address her and like i just i kind of have ideas of like the the 15 year old me who's like so stuck in this eating disorder yeah. because she's i never like looked at her and let her move through me and process her and so yeah. i think it's amazing that you were able to come to that and turn into that. And one thing I also heard you say on a podcast was once you got sober, that first kind of period of sobriety was almost like an incubation period, I think you said. And that, again, resonated so deeply with me because I think it is kind of like an incubation when you finally come home 
And when yeah. you finally like go back inside, you're like, okay, I have a lot to visit in here. And I'm kind of weirdly going through that right now as well. Like since quitting my job, I'm like feeling I'm really antisocial. I mean, it's also a pandemic, but I'm like, bless my friends, but I'm just so disconnected. I'm just like in my own little world and I'm healing and I'm doing breath work and I'm meditating and I'm doing yoga. And and so I think that incubation period is so healing. So I'm curious to know, what did that incubation period look like? That first year of sobriety when you decided to really turn in what what did that entail um a lot of alone time (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, you know my now husband we had just barely started dating but he was working two weeks on two weeks off and he would go down to costa rica and that was a perfect arrangement um and um and so you know aside from him you know i didn't go around my old friends and i was in a recovery and slam program and so i would go to those meetings but um you know when we kind of reset our nervous system you know i've always been highly intuitive and that that intuition has kept me alive you know that also is a blessing in sales but like i had to like let those parts of me really rest and like come out of survival mode. And that took, that took time. You know, I would, I would just be tired or even now it's like, I'm like fiercely like try to protect my alone time. Although it doesn't happen that much, but it, it happens probably more than the average person, I think. And, and I'll fight for that stuff because I know that if I can't feel my own energy, then I can't really know how I'm doing. And like, so when I'm going, 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 but I think when you have a spiritual bottom, you're forced to feel the pain. But then it's like, if I don't learn how to check in with myself and feel my own energy. And so I think that year was just really me getting acquainted with like my energy, who I was. Like I couldn't be around other people and run their energy through me or worry about what the heck was going on. It was like, I, and it was, almost like stimulation overload, you know? And so I just was like, I feel safest by myself here in, you know, my, my condo, my apartment. And, um, and two, you know, looking back, I'm a pretty sensitive person. And like, you're saying like, there was just some things that I just had to come to come to terms with for myself. And Mm -hmm. I didn't really, you know, I helped so many people through kind of this passage. It's like people come to me to make money because <laughs> I'm a business coach, a breathwork mm-hmm. healer. And then, you know, lo and behold, we got a lot of stuff going on and I'm honored that I get to do that and help them make money, but like hold them through the passage. And um, it's those times, if you get the opportunity and I encourage people to have sacred time and have quiet because there's just some things that like, I think we go on in every person's life that if we don't get to sit with those and really go, wow, that was really hard or wow. Mm. Like you're saying your 15 year old self, like, and just feel that and have this mm-hmm. space. Mm-hmm. We will just go perpetuate that stuff some more. Right? Absolutely. I love what you said about you kind of use that time to, to meet yourself in a way and find out yeah. who you really were. And so what, who did you meet? I guess like, what did you find out about yourself in that period that like you didn't actually realize was a part of you that was going through all of those prior experiences with you? You know, I don't think I, um, met anyone that I didn't know was there, Mm. but like, if you've heard the analogy, like you either feed the black wolf or the white wolf, right? Like you've heard this. Yeah. Yeah. And I just, I had to, feed that little white wolf Sophie of like, Hey, you can make money and not hustle. Like that year I worked with less clients and I made more money than I ever had. Um, but it was like, you don't have to go around those certain people. Um, you're still beautiful. You still are someone worthy. Like you don't have to. So it was just a matter of, you know, like you know, I use analogies all the time, but it's like, I needed that wolf to be strong enough or my garden to be strong enough that it could weather a storm or two. And so I I didn't think that there was anyone that wasn't there. It was like just coming back to my true self and being like, Mm. Hey, I'm so sorry. I've left you in all of these areas. And like, I'm really present now. Yeah. And And so I'm here to like 
be with you yeah. and we're going to, we're going to just build this back together. And it doesn't fucking matter what anyone thinks of you. Like it's yeah. okay. And yeah. you're going to help a lot of people. And mm-hmm. so there wasn't anyone that I didn't, there wasn't a version that I was like, Oh, this is here. But it was like, mm-hmm. Oh, I've got a massive black wolf over here that I have been feeding <laughs> for a long time. And mm-hmm. I've got to give some real attention to this other version. Right. And was it, is this when breathwork came into your life or how did you discover, I guess for our listeners, can you define breathwork and and give a little bit of an explanation of what it is and how it came into your life? Yeah. So breathwork is like a huge buzzword right now. We're hearing it a lot more or I am anyways, maybe that's the circles that I run in. Um, (laughs) There's many different types of breathwork. So um, sometimes if you go to a yoga class, you'll do some breath work at the end, right? So like it's actually people have probably tried it a little bit more. So what I what type of breath work I practice is I practice under David Elliott. And so it just it's he does he calls it breath work and it's just the David Elliott method because he doesn't want to call it or label it. He feels like it should be for everybody, not his name, but in the world of breath work, because people are like, Well, what type of breath work do you practice? So Um, the breath work that I practice is very active breath. You did it with me. And, um, what it does is it allows us to, the more that we practice this, we drop out of our thinking mind, out of our conscious mind, and we drop into our emotional being and our emotional mind, which is our body. And when we store trauma in our body or different things that have happened to us, or if we need to sit with that white wolf is a good way to put it. This is a really, really good way to do it because, you know, you can't, the same mind that got you sick is kind of be, it can't be the same mind that gets you better. And so you have to be able to like recalibrate your nervous system. Something breathwork does brings you into your rest and recovery breathwork or um, autonomic nervous system. So it's like, or parasympathetic if we want to get technical, but it's like, it really allows your body to feel what it's like to be safe, right? Cause we're all walking around reacting in fight or flight. If you have trauma, then that is like on the 10th degree. And so when I do breath work and breath work came to me, yeah, right around when I got sober, my beautiful teacher, Aaron Telford, who is trained under David, both of these people are like teachers in my world today. Um, I just found her and she was like, you know, a light. And I was like, Oh my God, this is my person right now. And she is very real. She is not a healer that isn't, you know, she is no bullshit. She is like, we are, you know, we're here to be, you know, we're here to heal and be sovereign beings and trust ourselves. And so, yeah, that's how I found it. And that's what it is. So it's an active three part breath. And, um, and, and that changed my, that I talk about it. I'm getting ready to do a breathwork masterclass, which is going to be amazing. And I talk about it a lot. And when I've been writing all about this experience and how, you know, when I did breathwork for the first time in my entire life, it was the first time I was like, Oh my God, I'm going to be okay. Mm. And I think, wow. as you know, like for somebody that's really struggled with addiction or skin picking Mm -hmm. and, you know, abandoning yourself to Mm -hmm. really feel like, Oh my God, I can trust me. Like I, this is, this is my thoughts. This is me. I can turn that really nervous mind off. That's just an overdrive. It was Mm -hmm. a huge, huge game changer for me. Absolutely. I love that. Like I'm okay. Like right here, right now in, in this body. And I think especially like your body, it went through so much trauma like physically addiction um my body has gone through its own traumas and it's like i have spent so many years running from it but also Mm -hmm. like i talked about with dahlia the other week it's like i never really wanted to bring it along for the healing journey i was like my mind is the one that's going to do all the work like i have go to therapy and i read my books and i take my meds and i'm but my body was just like the thing that like brought me there. And what I love about Dahlia's work and what I love about your work and breath work is it's like actually inviting the body along, which it needs yeah. to be there. And yeah. it just, yeah, I just would, yeah, when you said that, it kind of so made funny. me emotional because you're like, I it's, you're safe. Dahlia. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, and she's a friend. Yeah. That's awesome. So. Yeah, it's it's so important. We hear that's why I mean talk therapy, I'm a huge fan. Yeah. And I think 
I think all of the great programs, but if we cannot get in our body Mm -hmm. and teach our body that we know how to be safe, Mm -hmm. that we can take care of ourselves, Mm -hmm. we are so, we, it's 95% of our subconscious running the show anyway. Yeah. So it's like, it's just, it makes that journey home to yourself a a bit harder. I think if we don't know how to get into our bodies. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like this idea with breath where it's like it's your your mind and your emotions are so connected to your breath. And like if you're nervous or something's happening in your life, you'll you'll notice that like you're breathing up here, like you're really shallow breathing. And what people like my yoga teacher said this to me once. He's like, people don't often make the connection that it goes both ways. Like you can actually control your breathing and and do stuff with your breathing to communicate to your subconscious mind like I'm okay just like it communicates the other way around and so I love what you're saying about like it's it's just this little hack into this part of yourself that you can't really get to through talk therapy and through all of these other methods and it's just this I don't know it's just really interesting because I'm at like a turning point right now in my journey where I'm like finally starting to be like okay body you have been this thing that I have like hated on for so long and I'm like I want you to be a part of this now and like when I joined your breathwork circle a few like was it just two weeks ago or so now I like by the end I was like kind of hugging myself because I was like it's it is like a coming home and like a making peace with this part that we outrun or we spend so much time running away from. Yeah. I've never seen one person ever outrun a tsunami. No. So if it's out in the ocean, honey, it's coming to shore. It's going to get you. Yeah. It's going to get you. And, you know, you just can't outrun the tsunami of pain. And most of the time, you know, even if you've been taken under by a big wave, which I haven't, it's scary. But in reality you learn that like it's friendly, like your body, it's a friendly thing. The ocean's friendly. These things are friendly. But when we're, when we're little, we have to find ways to control. We have, when we, when we feel scared and when we, these are our coping mechanisms and like that's that 95% programming that's going on. And so whatever happened when you were little that said, Oh, I can control how I feel by when I eat and don't eat and hate my body or when I pick my skin it's like, these were like the very basic forms of control that you had. Right. And then like, even for me, drinking and drugs and alcohol, I mean, I was doing that at a really young age and it was like, but it changed the way I felt and it was a sense of control that I had. And then it just totally got away from me. And I'm like, Oh my God, what have I done? Right. And, and so, yeah, being able to uh, identify and make peace with and become friends with those, those things like your body and and your soul and your being and be like wow it's been a hard journey i mean i don't think enough people give each other like give enough credit for how hard their lives have been you know we hear like toughen up and 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 again that's that polarity with me where i'm like hey i i'm all about like high performance but it's like i i think one of my favorite words is empathy it's like but you've got to have empathy for it because most of us i don't know one person that's you know not left earth with a scratch i mean mm-hmm. we all had some really hard shit and it's like you gotta mm-hmm. be like it's been hard yeah. like i'm proud of myself i've come a long way yeah and not like keep going and don't feel anything right? yeah and well that's a perfect segue because one of the last things i wanted to talk with you about sophie was your your approach to business coaching and yeah i traditionally business coaching is so much of like what are the numbers like talk <laughs> yeah. money to me and I love that from what I gather, your approach is so much more holistic and that you bring in all of these other elements. So can you yeah. talk to us a bit about your approach to to business coaching and how you kind of got to this last most recent chapter? Yeah. So I had a lot of business coaches you yes. know, um, yeah. for a long time. I've spent well over $100,000 on coaching and I had some life coaches and then I found breathwork and I thought, God, how would, what would be the perfect coach for me back then? Right. And even now, right. Um, and that's how I came up with it. And I think I, I, some of the best coaches I had were people that didn't talk to me about the numbers, you know, that would be like, Hey, cause I didn't let a lot of people in. And, and it's interesting, you know, most people aren't letting a lot of people in, right. But we want to have this massive success and no one does it alone. And so, you know, I, I had some coaches that were like, what is going on? 
behind the scenes and like it would just I would just get a knot in my throat because it was like oh my god they can really see me and so I try to bring that in to anyone that works with me is you know let me be let me be a clear channel and really see who this person is and and what do we need to work on so they can really get to where they want to go and most people here like okay well if I just take massive action and I'm a big fan of action but I'm like okay well but it, we're going to just end right back here if we cannot deal with what we've got going on. So when people come to me for business coaching, you know, it might look and sound like, hey, I want to make $100,000 by the end of the year. And I'm like, awesome. Tell me, you know, can you tell me a little bit about, you know, what this year has been like? And so people will open up to me and my approach is really to be I think vulnerability is a superpower of mine. I think really genuinely witnessing people with non-judgment and being like, hey, if, if, if I'm not the person that we're going to look at those skeletons with, you better find somebody because you're just never going to get to the level of success you want until we like take those out, go in your burning building. Let's have a walk around. I'm right here. I'm shoulder to shoulder with you. Nothing's going to hurt you. I'm right here. But until we can do that, then it's like, and, and usually that's pretty fast and people take a big breath and then I'm like, okay, are you ready to go through, like build what you need to build? And they're like, yeah, I'm ready. And I'm like, awesome. Or continue that's to awesome. build. So that's mm-hmm. kind of how I take that approach. Yeah. I love that. I love like clearly one of like your core skill sets is vulnerability and, and non-judgment and being that safe space for someone. And I love that because so much of that is because of the experiences that you've had. And now you're turning that into is this healing space for other people. And it's just, it's so, yeah, the world works in mysterious ways, but it's just, totally. I love that you have taken some of your, your hardest stuff and you figured out what were, what are your strengths as a result of that. And now you're, you're literally making a career out of that. So that's yeah. so inspiring. Well, and then- What happens is usually when you show people that they're, and I know we're coming to the end, but usually when you show people that everything's going to be okay and we go through everything, then that other side of me comes out, right? Which is like the very entrepreneurial, very business, very, and now I'm not like, what are your numbers? You're failing. But I'm like, (laughs) hey, there's no victims around here. There's only volunteers. So you volunteered to grow a business. We did all this fun stuff together. I believe in you, but now let's get going. And then I see people have massive results because that's what they really genuinely wanted. They just needed someone to say, I completely believe in you. And like, yeah. let's look at all the bullshit so that you can like really go get it. And yeah. I always do. I like yeah. never not see someone do it. Yeah. I love that. I Yeah. That's so perfect. And, and a good note to end on. And, and I just love how you've, you've kind of come to this place where you are fine. You found out how to be okay from the inside and you're helping other people do that through breath work and through your business coaching. So thank you. And thank yeah. you for your vulnerability and your honesty, Sophie. I clearly love real, real shit and getting down into it. As you can tell from my opening question, I'm like, let's talk trauma. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Yeah. So I really appreciate you coming on and just being real. And I think the world needs more of this. And that's why I want to do this podcast. And so I'm so grateful for people like you who, who oh come God, on and, and you just own your stories. And I love yeah. this. Thank you. It's been so fun. And I just love that you've come into my world. So yeah, thank you for asking me on. And it's been a pleasure. Yay. Okay. Thank you so much, Sophie. Bye. Bye.